0: Hi, everybody. It's Bob and Doug McKenzie again from the Great White North. Um, I'm here with Redmond Weisberger, which still sounds like a sandwich I would order from an SS shop, uh, who is the president of Mises Canada, uh, Mises.ca. Uh, and you can check out it out. They're really starting to get some great content uh, on there, some great articles. So I hope you will go and check that out. Welcome back, Red.
1: Cool. I think, what is it? The... <coughs> <laughs> you,
0: the young man will go higher than I am. Yeah. <laughs> so you said uh you, you set up a couple of topics which i thought were very interesting um the first which i think is worth digging into is keynesianism oh there's a gripping topic with which to snag yes. the audience right up front but yeah. uh, i i think it's something really really worth understanding um i know a little bit about the history but if you wanted to dive in uh, let's uh, you know i i i, I sent the smell of um Economic gay blood in the water, and uh, uh, the Daddy's getting hungry, so maybe we can rip this one a new one because I think it's particularly vile doctrine. I wonder if you can talk a bit about the history and the illusions that people have about it.
1: Oh, okay. Well, Keynesianism, um well, the way I see Keynesianism, uh, I mean, Keynesianism, obviously it's named after uh, John Maynard Keynes, right? And uh, what's interesting about Keynes is that, in fact, uh, Early on, he was he was a proponent of, of uh, you know free trade and and early on uh, also fairly free markets. But uh, yeah, Murray Rothbard quoted him as saying that he was he actually called himself an immoralist, right? So he he specifically said he doesn't have any morals, and he was known for changing his mind on a regular basis, right? So um, leading up to and uh, his famous book, uh, the one that. Uh, the one that sort of changed the world and made everybody Keynesians now, was uh, the general theory. Now, when he released this book, um, the, the governments of the day had already been involved in uh, a fair amount of uh, intervention in the market right now. And, of course, as Keynes's general theory was, was the idea that governments could go and uh, you know, essentially basically spend money, intervene in the economy to achieve some sort of uh, desired result. Uh, and generally, it was related to un- uh, unemployment, right? So they, the idea is that uh, governments would uh, engage in deficit spending, would, uh, and this would enable the uh, the unemployment levels to rise, or no, the, the unemployment or the unemployment levels to lower. So the the government would spend money, create demand, and uh, employment levels would go up.
0: Right, and this is a, it's, it's a complete mirror image of the Austrian school because he places the business cycle, right, the booms and the bust, he places that directly in the free market, that the free market is just prone to the madness of crowds, irrational exuberance, and this up and down. And what you want is a government that's going to smooth things out, make things nice and even, so when demand collapses because of the mad schizoid nature of the free market, you're going to prop up demand by pumping money into the economy. And the theory then, of course, is that when demand rises again as a result of that, governments need to cut back to lower their spending, even to levels lower than before they started borrowing because they've got to pay off all that debt. And, um, of course, half the equation only ever gets implemented. The government spends like crazy, which is what they love to do because it gets them into power and keeps them into power. But they don't ever do the flip side of it, which is to save when the demand increases.
1: Yeah, well, it was uh, Keynes who coined the term uh, animal spirits. Right. And, and so he thought it was all this irrational. He, I mean, the thing is, he was he was trying. Oh,
0: sorry, I, I thought it was about making wine out of badgers, but not. Yeah, <laughs> I may have missed that part.
1: Yeah, well, see, the problem is, is that. Um, so when Keynes wrote his book, The General Theory, um, the thing is, is that governments had already been involved in massive amounts of deficit spending. And of course, this was what created the Great Depression, massive amounts of of intervention. Right. And so it's it's my opinion that he essentially just wrote this book because that was what was going on already. And he wanted to be in there with uh you know with the the powers that be and he basically wrote a book that justified all of their spending. Right? And well and, and it, government is always yeah.
0: people in power are always very friendly to intellectuals who say that their use of power is really great. You know, there's nothing better than giving you know government spending is is the way to to work your way out of all problems. Governments love that, and they will lavish praise and and money and status uh, on all of the people who praise this sword of the state uh, and say that it can be used for good.
1: Well, I mean, and a, and a key example of that is that uh, within the within the introduction of the German version, uh, the German edition of Keynes's book, General Theory, which, of course, was released you know, while the Nazis were in power. Uh, he writes right in the introduction that um, his system would be far more easily, to, easily implemented within a state like Nazi Germany, a Nazi socialist state with a top-down control of the economy. And that is, of course, uh, what Nazism was. It was uh, National Socialist German Workers' Party, the NSDAP. And, uh, you know, some people who call themselves socialists like to conflate Nazism with with capitalism, but of course it was socialism.
0: Well, and it's also just on a sort of minor detour. It's easy to forget, and in fact it's not often remembered, the degree to which intellectuals and the ruling classes in the West loved fascism, loved communism, and even had a strong admiration for Nazism. Uh, they, they had a fetish for it. You know, they really saw it as something that was amazing and wonderful and exuberant and and vital and so on. And, and reading back, I mean, w- what happened with the, the intellectuals pilgrimage to the Soviet Union was just unbelievably reprehensible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but even, even you can read very, very pro-Hitlerian statements and certainly you can get lots and lots of pro-Mussolini uh, statements from the leading intellectuals. And people in significant positions of power in state departments and foreign departments yeah. uh, who were responsible for... Um, foreign policy uh they really did like these guys uh, they had a lot of charisma of course you know tyrants have a lot of charisma in general but they love these guys and you know the fact that all the intellectuals were saying more state power is good does not exactly help you uh, fight the good fight against rising totalitarianism
1: well the thing is that well yeah there, were, there was a, basically there was a puff piece on mussolini just about every week in time magazine Um, and, and of course, uh, the thing that Hitler had done that, uh, that, you know, sort of stunned, I guess, some of these economists was that, you know, he had sort of put together a successful plan, you know, a successful planned economy, right? That, that they, you know, their, their unemployment levels were lower. Of course, it was all based on preparations for war. So, you know, the, the, the problem is, of course, it's the the old fallacy that, you know, war solves economic problems by putting people to work. Of course, they're drafting everybody.
0: Same. Well, and of course, um, refusing to pay reparations, uh, stopping the payment of reparations under the Versailles Treaty helped a little bit keep some of the capital and gold within Germany as well.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, there's, yeah, you know, I mean, you could do a whole talk on uh, Versailles and the the end of World War One, but, uh, but, anyways, let's go back to uh, Keynesianism. So, so Keynes writes this book. Um, interestingly enough, all the Keynesians, and of course, he, he sort of. Uh, up until this point, the Austrian School of Economics was very mainstream. Um, uh, Hayek, uh, F.A. Hayek, it was actually you know, friends with Keynes, and they would have debates, and uh, he would write, Hayek wrote point-for-point you know, point rebuttals of Keynes' work, and then when General Theory came out, uh, Hayek did not respond to General Theory in a, in a really hardcore way, and, and some might say that this was Hayek's sort of fatal mistake. If Hayek could actually respond, if people were actually looking to Hayek to do this. He didn't do it, and Keynesianism took off. Uh, it became sort of the fad within uh, academia, and of course, as we stated before, governments loved it. So you know they were happy to pour money into economics departments. Um, if you look at what happened during the war, of course, you had a total planned economy uh, across the entire world. Um, in in the U.S., what was funny is that right after the war. They actually, the government of the time, not the president, but the the Congress, actually radically cut the budget, cut the number of people who were in the military, and Keynesians actually thought that there was going to be a massive depression right after the war, but there wasn't, um, and what you saw was a growth in the economy. Well,
0: yeah, sorry, that's very true, and just just to put some numbers behind that, the um, the government budget in the U.S. was cut by two-thirds. Which, yeah. of course, should cause a massive depression, uh, according to Keynesian theory, uh, just as the spending in the 30s should have solved the problem of the Great Depression. But when you're in an ideologically power-sucking paradigm, facts don't matter. The only thing that matters is what you can convince the, uh, the people to turn over their pockets to do. You know, whatever nonsense. The intellectuals are like the little urchin who runs into you in a crowded square to distract you while the guy picks your pocket. And uh, the facts don't matter. As long as people will give up their money, you can speak, you know, give them any kind of bullshit that you want.
1: Yeah, well, that that was the thing is that the um, and of course uh, what was completely ignored in the mainstream analysis was the fact that leading up to the Great Depression, of course, you had massive intervention by governments into the economy, uh, the Federal Reserve, uh, and of course there were issues with Britain uh, after World War One attempting to go back on a gold standard, but at the same exchange rate as they had before World War One. Of course, they printed; they had gone off the gold standard printed a bunch of money, and then after the war, they tried to go back on the gold standard. And that,
0: that well, correct. and I think one thing that people forget about the economy of the 20s is that it was a, in, in Western Europe, and it was a massive smoking crater of 10 million bodies and billions and billions of dollars of worth of property damage left over by the ultimate government program. War is a government yes. program, and... When you are trying to recover from the worst and most destructive war to date, only eclipsed by the Second World War, of course, you can't look at that as a free market any more than you could look at someone's general health when they're trying to pull an arrow out of their chest.
1: Well, though, again, as well, you need to look at, uh, but also there was a difference between what was going on in the United States, because, of course, the United States, after World War One and after World War II, uh, you know, came out of it unscathed, right? They had their industrial base intact. They... You know, they came in at the end of World War One, and so they, you know, they didn't sacrifice half their working their working age people, you know, to this war. But um, going back to Keynesianism, so, of course, um, at the end of World War Two, you know, Keynes was involved in uh, the Bretton Woods Agreement. He actually, at that point, already wanted to create a, uh, a global fiat currency, um, but they weren't able to do it at that point. And oh, and actually, one one more point back to uh, Keynes's general theory. Um, Gary North points this out. Um, the The founder of the social credit movement, um, his name escapes me at the moment, um, wrote a book basically in the nineteenth century, and he created this idea that you could create. Uh, Gary North uh, called his book uh, "Salvation Through Inflation," right? And so it was mixed up with Christian theology. The idea was you would provide uh, free or very very cheap credit to people to uh, to increase you know to increase uh, the, the economic situation to improve it and uh, at the very last chapter of Keynes' Keynes's book uh, the General Theory he actually goes through what he foresees as as his sort of uh, utopia right and he sees the uh, socialization of credit he sees um, basically credit being made free. Right. He wants to have zero interest rates. Right. This, is, this is sort of the Keynesian world he envisions. Now, um, so going back to after, so, you know, the 60s, the 50s, you know, continue the 60s. We had a, we had a large, we had interventions in the economy during the 60s, uh, especially in the U.S. You had uh, people declaring a new era, uh, right? And, and, of course, this was because of um, you know, government printing money, stimulating the economy. Uh, there was the nifty 50 stocks. But at the same time, um, you had, um, you had the, the prosecution of the Vietnam War, right? And then you also had Johnson throwing in his uh, Great Society, which was in some ways the completion of the, of the New Deal, right? This is when Johnson threw in, uh, I mean, Social Security had been put in during the New Deal. But then within Johnson, you've got Medicare, Medicaid, uh, the welfare state as we know it today was put in then. And of course, all of this all of this is created by the fact that uh, the government basically had unlimited ability to print uh, good money. Now, during the Bretton Woods situation, U.S. government um, this is when the U.S. dollar became the, the world reserve currency that it is today. Right, the the Americans held the gold. The U.S. dollar was held by central banks instead of uh, gold, and. Um, of course, as we hit 1971, um, the, the U.S. government – now this is this is sort of leading up into Keynesianism because Keynesian was still being used at this point, right? But the U.S. government had been printing so much money um, and spending so much money that governments around the world were starting to claim. And specifically France, uh, influenced by – Charles de Gaulle was influenced by an economist who's actually an Austrian, a man named Jacques Rouef And he advised de Gaulle to take back their, uh, to send their American dollars back and to get gold. Because at this point, um, individual citizens were not allowed to uh, own gold in the United States. They could only exchange, they could only hold US dollars. But foreign central banks could hold gold uh, or US dollars and they could exchange it for gold at $33 an ounce. Now, they basically tried various things to, uh, you know, to keep that ratio going, um, but of course Nixon never wanted to cut any money. He never wanted to cut any of the budget. You know, uh, Johnson never wanted to cut any of the budget. So at that point in 1971, uh, Richard Nixon cut the window to gold. And what's interesting is that in his, uh, he cut the last connection that the U.S. dollar held to gold. And that's when the entire world won a, went on a global fiat currency system.
0: Well, and this, of course, was the beginning of the energy crisis, because without a dollar backed by gold, the Middle East countries and the other countries who were exporting oil to the U.S. uh, had to raise their prices to take into account the inflationary aspects of the U.S. fiat currency system.
1: Yeah, well, the energy crisis also was, uh, Murray Rothbard does an excellent talk on this, the energy crisis also was in a very large way self-inflicted. The American government put on oil controls, they put on rationing, they were setting prices across the nation. Right. Uh, there, you know, there was massive interventions uh, in the oil economy just in the United States on top of what whatever was happening uh, with the oil market abroad. Now, of course, during the 70s, the Americans made a deal with the Saudis and they said they were going to back the Saudi royal family if the Saudis would only sell their oil for U.S. dollars. Now, that that the term petrodollars came out of that sort of agreement. And so this is this is another one of the reasons why we still use the dollar today is because it became the only uh, currency that you were allowed to purchase oil with. Right? Well, and I'm so, sorry,
0: just to point out that uh, the U.S. spends hundreds of billions of dollars a year supplying arms to the Saudi family. Uh, yeah. And uh, and and so what this is, of course, is that the prices at the pump may stay a little bit lower for a time, but you're just adding to the debt, the future generation. It's a hidden tax, right? Because you borrow or print money to pay for these weapons, uh, which you then give to this uh, sadistic and brutal regime over there. And so the the, the prices stay a little bit low, but that's a big hidden tax, a storm cloud gathering in the future.
1: Well, yeah, and and I mean, certainly you could say that uh, you know the, the first Gulf War of 1991 was done at the behest of the Saudis. Um, and then right now, you know, with the with everything that's going on with Iran, um, oftentimes people will say, oh well, it's the Israelis who want Iran bombed. Well, sure, sure, the Israelis want Iran bombed, but the Saudis also want Iran bombed, and you can they actually have basically come out and said it. It's, been, it's it's within cables that have been released. The Saudis are no friend of Iran because there's a large uh, Shiite population of Muslims or sh- a large population of Shiite Muslims. Within the oil-rich regions of Iran, of, of Saudi Arabia, and of course, the the ruling class of uh, of Saudi Arabia is, is Sunni Muslim, right? But I mean, that's a, that's another talk. But going back to um, going back to uh, Keynesianism. So Keynesianism uh, was being practiced up until 1971, right? But then within ni- the 1970s, okay, you had stagflation, right? And this was supposed to be impossible within the Keynesian framework. And, and it is it is important to note that Keynesianism, or John Maynard Keynes, essentially created the, the field of macroeconomics as we use it today, as we know it today. Uh, he created the idea of using complicated um, you know, uh, mathematical, uh, mathematical functions to attempt to describe the macroeconomy. And essentially what he did was you had microeconomics, and of course the Austrian School of Economics is, is built from the ground up. Right. So it's all based on the individual and it goes up from there. Um, and in terms of microeconomics, most uh, most economists will agree with uh, sort of the microeconomic features. But what Keynes did is he grafted on micro- macroeconomics onto the top. So. Essentially, from the Keynesian view, you, you pull levers at the top. You do things like you adjust uh, money supply, interest rates. And this is supposed to change macro factors. But it's completely divorced from what's going on at the micro level, right? So they'll they'll point to GDP going up. They'll point to government spending, increasing GDP, creating jobs. But there's nothing about what kind of jobs these these are.
0: And frankly, I mean, who would really care about – I mean – I don't think people would really care that much about macroeconomics if it wasn't for socialism and fascism. It was, if it wasn't for the fantasy that central planners could run our lives better than we can ourselves, who would care about macroeconomics? People would just be focusing on their business plans, their personal finances, and you would have vague general suppositions about the economy. But the, uh, the science or the, the discipline of macroeconomics seems to me to go lockstep with, with socialism.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Keynes was a socialist.
0: Oh, so, so let's let's just talk about so talk about why the the um, the stagflation is is impossible under Keynesianism and uh, let's talk about why that didn't put any nails in the coffin
1: well it, it actually it actually did for a time it did put nails in the coffin um well the whole point with it was um, within within the Keynesianism and, and stagflation is that you would uh, the government would increase spending and uh, Prices might go up, but you would also have an increase in employment, right? Unemployment would go down, right? But then also um, what you would do is you, you of course, do the reverse, right? If the, if the economy got too overheated, you would withdraw spending from the economy. And prices would go down, but you might have slightly higher unemployment. Now, what happened during the 1971 or during the, during the 1970s in stagflation is you had uh, money being spent unemployment rising and price, prices rising all at the same time. And Keynesians, didn't, they didn't think this could happen. So essentially, the 1970s uh, destroyed Keynesianism for a time, right? So uh, what, you know, you could say was dead from the neck up.
0: And there was, of course, uh, after uh, Hayek won the Nobel Prize, was it 74, I think? There was a, yeah. a resurgence of interest in the Austrian school because the Austrian school could explain some very salient points about the boom-bust cycle. So, for instance, why does it start in capital goods and then only move to consumer goods and so on? So, there was a resurgence in Austrian economics, but that really didn't seem to last very long.
1: Well, okay. The resurgence started in Austrianism, but but who really took over after the Keynesianism, after the Keynesians was the monetarists, right? And this was uh, uh, Milton Friedman. And the monetarists, those are the guys who sort of uh, came next in terms of managing the macroeconomy. Now, of course... um, Friedman's very good on, uh, he was very good on libertarianism and and freedom. You know, he had his book, Free to Choose. Uh, He was uh, a main, one of the main guys who was fighting against the draft in the United States. And he actually thought that that was was one of his great things was that he contributed to getting rid of the draft. But the problem with the monetarists is, of course, they are, um, they're positivists, right? So they still believe, uh, they believe that a, a central bank should exist. Um, they believed uh, that the way to solve the problem of, uh, of pure fiat currencies and the way that they re- relate to each other was have uh, freely fro- no, no uh, pegged exchange rates, freely floating um, uh, exchange rates and whatnot. And, of course, the problem that he saw in the Great Depression that Milton Friedman saw um, was that uh, the Federal Reserve did not print enough money. See, he, he thought that there was too much of deflation of the money supply during the, uh, the late 1920s. And he thought the Fed should have actually printed more. Now, of course, you can see the problems with that. Um, and the monetarists did last for a while. Um,
0: and I'm sorry, I just wanted to point out the uh, elemental contradiction in monetarist theory is they say, let's have a government-enforced monopoly within a geographical region, but then free trade between, free trade and competition between geographical regions. Yeah. Which is, why is there a magic line where reality changes around a particular geographical region? Well, we want a state-granted monopoly of currency within America and Canada. There's its own state-granted monopoly. But between the two currencies, we want free-floating exchanges and competition and so on. Well, if there's going to be competition and free trade, why is there a difference between a country and within a country? That's something that's never made any sense to me because I think it doesn't make any sense.
1: Well, the way that uh, Joe Salerno talks about it, he said that we entered a period of dirty floating, right? Right. So theoretically, you know, everybody was just supposed to, um, you know, they would keep their monetary base stable and whatnot, and, and trade would happen. But what would happen is to increase exports, com- countries would uh, devalue their currency, right? They would print massive amounts of currency. Um, and of course, we also have the problem uh, during during the years since the uh, since 1971 is that the U.S. dollar has remained the world reserve currency. Um, they've also been the largest, uh, they've also now become the largest importer. And every time that the U S government inflates, um, the money goes overseas, gets held eventually ends up in central banks of foreign countries. And if it doesn't come back to the United States, uh, what they do is they use that as an asset on the balance sheet to, uh, increase the amount of their own currency. So, you know, U S inflation of the money supply leads to uh, eventually leads to global inflation of the money supply. Right. So all the other nations in part, what they they do, it's so that they, uh, you know, so that their, that their exchange rate doesn't um, change. Right. They want to keep the balance of trade. Right. So when the U S government increases its money supply, the Canadian government will then also increase its money supply so that our currency does not appreciate against the U S dollar so that we can maintain our, our uh, balance of trade.
0: It also means, of course, it tends to be a self-reinforcing cycle, because as banks and other institutions are holding U.S. dollars, they're all heavily invested, literally, in maintaining the value of the U.S. dollar, when a more skeptical approach might cause it to collapse, certainly given the numbers, uh, I think, of 100 Well, yeah, I mean, that's, and, and that's
1: why right now um, Canada has almost no gold. We have, you know, three tons of We used, gold. To. <laughs> we used yeah, to. We used to. Yeah, we had 100 tons of gold or so. We had, or maybe even 1,000, I don't know, i, I got to look the number up, but... Uh, but yeah, we had a, we used to have a ton of gold. and We actually only sold our gold off, gold off uh, quite recently. Um, sure. In the last few years, we sold it all off. Um, I don't know. I don't particularly know why. But you know, a large, uh, you know, basically what's backing the, the Canadian dollar is U.S. dollars, um, and a lot of countries are are doing the same thing.
0: Although, no. uh, you know, Canada, to its credit, is hearing the giant sucking sound of the south and is sending Stephen Hopper over to China to lick the boots of the new rulers so that he can get some trade going east-west rather than north-south.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the U.S. has been the largest trading partner of Canada for a very long time. But uh, in the Financial Post a couple, about a week or two ago, I saw, I saw a stat that showed that we are actually, you know, for the last 10 years, we've been shifting our trade yep. away from the United States. Um, Which I think is a very smart thing to do, and uh, and I I think countries around the world right now are actually, I mean, you know, in the end, I think people know what's going on, right? They they can see what's happening. It's interesting.
0: Sorry, let's let's just talk about a few of the examples of ways in which Keynesianism doesn't work. So, of course, one of the greatest uh, experiments in stimulus spending was Japan over the past twenty years when their real estate crashed in 1990. They then spent trillions of yen. I don't even know what the number is of yen cuz yen is such <laughs> such a paper currency anyway. And now they have a a debt to GDP that's over 220%. Their economy remains mired in the doldrums. Like all late stage fiat currency collapse environments, their birth rates are collapsing. I mean, it's just a complete mess. And this of course should not have occurred according to Keynesian theory. And you can think of many, many other countries where spending has led to permanent recession slash depression. I think personally we're facing the same issue because we got massive stimulus spending in the US, slightly smaller amount in Canada per capita, except I guess Ontario is fairly big but this is not pulling things out of the recession as the guy um I Stinson I think it was in the America who said you know after 10 years of stimulus spending we've spent money on everything thing we can think of We still have massive unemployment. We still have really low trade, but we also have a massive debt to boot. Those are the long-term consequences that Keynes derided by his famous remark, well, in the long run. People say, well, what happens in the long run with all this stimulus spending when you come out and there's this massive debt and then governments have to contract their spending to pay off the debt? Don't you just end up in an even worse cycle? He says, in the long run, we're all dead. Uh, which is a, a brilliant but ultimately incredibly nihilistic response to a legitimate criticism. But uh, there's lots of examples of how Keynesianism achieves the opposite of its stated goals, which is why you know it's a government program.
1: Yeah, well, uh, I mean, the very first, uh, the very first Keynesian experiment that didn't work was the Great Depression, right? I mean, um, you had an interventionist government uh, under Herbert Hoover, um, and, and honestly, uh, it was funny because. FDR FDR ran as as somebody who was going to balance the budget. He didn't balance the budget, Um, and and within their writings, the people within the FDR administration said everything that we're doing we took from Hoover. He started it, and we just continued it, right? So, and then what you had was a classic Keynesianism. um, You know, putting price controls, uh, controlling the market, uh, massive spending on infrastructure projects, and all that sort of thing. Not once did the unemployment rate fall below ten percent, uh, you know, within uh, within the United States at that time. And of course, uh, you know, and, and then, you know, the you you could look at the last forty years uh, since going off gold, uh, you know, as essentially an extended experiment in Keynesianism, right? Essentially, we've been le- living now in this world of of pure global global fiat currency, and as you can see from what the Fed is doing. We're now approaching that point that Keynes wanted, right? We're approaching a point of zero interest rates forever, right? The, the, um, you know, the uh, since 2008, uh, and essentially 2008 is when Keynesianism sort of got uh, reinvigorated or the zombie came back to life, right? Because they didn't necessarily believe in Keynesianism, uh, you know, leading up to that point. But after the crash, none of the mainstream economists knew what to do. The monetarists didn't know
0: what to do. Nobody wanted to know what to do. So well, would... well, I think they knew what to do. I think I, I would argue that they knew what to do. But Keynesianism, you know, this is standard public choice theory. Keynesianism is by far the path of least resistance. Printing yes. money, handing it out, getting votes, as opposed to confronting public sector unions, uh, deregulating, which, which... Pisses off everybody who's profiting from those regulations and restrictions, lowering taxes, cutting spending. All of that is is going to get people kicked out of office because the you know the, the general population is worse than economically illiterate. There are people who think they know what they're talking about, but quite the opposite is true. Uh, and um, yeah, it's one thing to say I don't know anything about nutrition. It's quite another thing to say you know shun your broccoli and eat your. <laughs> Chocolate cake—that's the path to health. People are not only—they're economically anti-literate, which means that confrontations with heavily invested um, uh, public and private uh, interests will get you kicked out of office, uh, you know, faster than I don't know. Inserts a Clinton cigar joke somewhere here, and so I think that's the issue: is that they grab onto this stuff because printing money and bribing people is exactly what. Governments want to do. Everybody knew you had to cut taxes, you had to open trade, you had to get rid of regulations, because that's what saved the economy after the Second World War was detonating all these regulations and government programs. But we do not have the politicians with the spine for that, and we do not have a population that's even close to accepting that. Sorry, end of France, just. Uh, no, no, rant. no. That's fair. and
1: well, I mean that's the thing, right? The and um, our constantly inflating economy, or you know, constant price rises. I mean, the thing is, for people who are young, um, you know, at the beginning of their career. Well, I mean right now we actually have a very large proportion of young people unemployed right now but at the same time if you're within the system while it's inflating um, you can switch jobs you can ride the rave of inflation right it's 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 when you start detaching yourself from that you know constantly inflating system um, you know because there's a sort of money spigot that's flowing flying around and, and if you you know catch yourself and you go bang I'm gonna get into real estate you get out of real estate. Okay, what's what's the next thing that's gonna you know be inflated by the government? What bubble is gonna be popped up next? You can get in that bubble. You know, you know, like you know, it, it's the thing is like look at somebody who, um, and and it's funny too is because Keynes actually said um, before he wrote the General Theory, he said the surest way he said inflation um, basically is is the surest way to to rob people, destroy their wealth. And not one person in a hundred will know what what the effects or what the causes are. It's hilarious. Well, then in
0: inflation and other forms of financial jiggery create such an unstable system that there's great profit to be made in the general ignorance of the economic system, which is why you get this massive swelling of the financially parasitical classes. Why do you have so many people working in Wall Street? Because the government is shifting the tides with its big giant finger. And so everybody's catching the fish that's spurt up and nobody knows where the hell the next thing is coming from. At least very few people do. But those who do can make a fortune.
1: Yeah, well, and that's actually what you've seen is the, um, as a percentage of the population employed, I mean, I actually, I haven't looked at the numbers since 2008, um, but as a percentage of the population employed in, uh, in the United States, basically, you've had this great sucking sound of people running, you know, rushing sound of people running into the financial sector because that's where the money is.
0: Right. And, and away from economically productive things, you know, which actually provide value rather than uh, stealing people. And it's something that's always struck me. It's just astounding. And people say that the government should, you know, we, we've we got to ban drugs, you see, because drugs, they may have short term. I mean, certainly do have short term positive consequences. But boy, in the long run, it's really mm-hmm. bad. But that is Democracy And debt is a drug. The, the statism, as we currently understand it, is the ultimate drug. At least when you take heroin, you're only messing with your own system and, and affecting the lives of those directly around you. When you mess with the currency, with the drug of inflation and fiat currency, you're messing up everybody's lives uh, in, in, around the world. You're maintaining poverty in the third world. You're collapsing people's potential for self-actualization in the economic sphere in the here and now. Uh, the idea that government fights drugs when government is addicted to the most dangerous drug, which is currency inflation, has always to me, a, a particularly rancid joke. Yeah, well, it's impossible
1: to. Um, I mean, it's impossible to plan for the future, right? When you when the government can just devalue the currency by half overnight, essentially, right? And if you want to look at a way that the you know that this actually does, you know, because they're saying that they're complaining that, say, capitalism impoverishes the middle class. Well, but it, number one, we don't have capitalism. Number two, it's government control the money supply and the interest rate that uh, impoverishes the middle class, right? So you've got a situation. Now let's say I uh, I buy a house at uh, you know two point seven five percent interest five hundred thousand dollar house I put twenty percent down let's not even put twenty percent down I have a four hundred thousand dollar mortgage you know and uh, so a certain let's say ten percent of my of my income is going into to pay for my uh, my housing costs or let's say twenty percent of my income is going to pay for my housing costs. Um, five years down the line government jacks interest rates they're now at. Uh, You know, 8%, you know, because the government has has spent so much and screwed it up so much. I mean, you look at the 1980s, Volcker jacked the rate up to 18%. Yeah. Right? If you're in a situation, let's say I've got that $400,000 mortgage that I got at 2.75%, five years down the line, the interest rate is 8%. Now, that 20% of my income that was going to to pay for my housing, and and actually, and also look at the fact that, you know, let's say that the house was, was being taxed at two hundred thousand dollars. Now the house is being taxed at a five hundred thousand dollars price, right? I mean, number one, your 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 your, uh, your property tax rates are going to go up. Now, let so let's see, your your interest rate gets reset at eight percent. All of a sudden, forty percent of your income could go be going directly into your housing.
0: Well, now, and who, because of the interest in in, in interest the increase in interest rates, the value of your house has to decline relative to those payments. Yeah.
1: So yeah. So now, number one, you're going to be underwater. Number two. You're, you know, more of your money is going to be going to the banks. Um, and you wonder, of course, those banks will be showing record profits, but it's at the expense of the middle class.
0: Right? Well, and ha- the people who talk about the free market harming the middle class, you know, there's this bizarre belief that people have, Redmond, about how like like the economy only started in 1800. You know, you can't compare the economy. How big was the middle class in the Middle Ages? For heaven's sakes, so there was no capitalism. There was no middle class. You had you know tiny parasitical uh, priests and yeah. and and uh, the landlord aristocrats, and then you had a massive serf population. I mean, nobody in between. And yeah. the middle class grew out of the industrial revolution, and that's where capitalism started. And
1: well, uh, yeah, I mean, it was the it was the application of uh, what you know what they called the the Manchester system within uh, within U, the UK. You know, was also termed laissez-faire, right? Um, and yeah, and, that, and that's when you had the that's when you had the middle class start to grow. But what we're happening, what's happening now, what happens under socialism, particularly, is again you have this system where you have a few elite at the peak, right? You'll have the, the few rulers, and within our system, within our system, with the United States, you have it. Sure, they get elected every once in a while, right? Every four years, um, the people at the top change. You know, not. But then, at the, but then you start to have the bureaucratic class, which appears under it, and of course, the bureaucratic class never changes, right? Um, no matter which comp- no, no matter which uh, politicians are are in are in uh, power, the bureaucratic class, you know, is this sort of set, fixed. And what I find hilarious about uh, about uh, civil servant pensions in Canada is their index to inflation, right? When of course the government is creating the inflation that
0: well, but see what that does is it, it creates an entire voting block that doesn't care about inflation. And so okay. that allows the government to inflate without people on these pensions getting upset. And, of course, it comes. And let's talk. Let's sort of finish up with this because it comes at the expense of the private sector pensions. So that's implicit. Whenever you drive up inflation, you are transferring wealth from private sector pensions to public sector pensions because you have to get the money to pay for the increases somewhere. And so there's a net loss of the private net gain to the public. But it's becoming even more explicit now when you have uh, politicians – actually implementing direct taxes on private sector pensions in order to fund, I mean, general spending, but I think it's with an eye to the the deficiencies in the public sector pensions. And we talked a little bit about, you emailed a bit about that. So you yeah, talk well, about that.
1: Yeah, well, what, what actually happened in Hungary, um, just at the end of uh, 2010, beginning of 2011, uh, the Hungarian government uh, nationalized uh, the par- private pensions, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this is the danger um, of holding your money of course, uh, governments around the world have been incentivizing people to put, uh, to shelter um, their their retirement savings within a government program, right, because it's supposedly it's tax-free. In Canada, we have RRSPs. In the U.S., you have 401ks. Um, Ireland has also uh, nationalized uh, private pensions. France, which, of course, is supposed to be this you know, great first world country, is also looking at nationalizing the. Uh, Private pensions that hasn't happened in Canada and it hasn't happened in the U.S. yet, but this is the problem. You know, if you if you pull your money out of those RRSPs out of those retirement savings programs, they're massively taxed, right? It's just tacked to whatever you're... So let's say you make eighty thousand dollars a year, and you pull hundred thousand dollars out of your out of your income out of your RRSPs because you want to get them away from the government so they aren't nationalized and they aren't they aren't taxed. Um, you uh, or you get hit with you. Basically, you're making one hundred eighty thousand dollars that year and they just strip away almost half of it right there. Um, and of course, the other problem, the other thing about our RSPs um, and with these these um, these government registered savings programs is that it, it encourages people to pour their money into the uh, into the investment sector.
0: Oh, it's a massive bribe to the investment sector. There are so many people who are in the stock market who shouldn't be. The stock market, of course, originally designed for people who knew a lot about a particular industry to invest money in a company that they knew about. Uh, So it really is. It only works when people are directly knowledgeable. It doesn't work when you get masses of herded, enforced speculators going in there who have to put their money there for fear that the government's going to strip it from them by force otherwise.
1: Yeah, well, well, that's it, right? That's the whole reason you're supposed to put it into RSPs so you don't get taxed. It comes off your taxable income. But again, like you said, once it's in there and, and the reason uh, why people are also herded into the um, investment market is that because of government inflation, uh, there's a real negative interest rate, right? Um, and especially so, yeah, that, you have
0: to invest. Just to, even if you want to maintain value, you have to throw your money into the stock market. Otherwise, it's going to bleed away with your half a percentage point savings uh, payment, right?
1: Yeah, well, and, and that's exactly it, right? If, if you're you're making four percent interest, but the government is uh, inflating and creating incre- inflating a money supply and creating a, a real interest rate of ten percent, you're losing five percent on that cash balance every year. And so, what happened was people put it into investments. But it's a joke. Nobody. Sorry,
0: you know, I think you meant six percent. If you've got an uh, interest rate, well, you're getting paid four, and the government's inflating ten. To
1: no, 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 oh, no, no. Well, no, no. What i what I meant is that the the, the cost of living. What I meant is that if the government is inflating, yeah, if the government is inflating five um, you know enough that it's causing a ten percent real interest rate in cost in the cost, right. real rise in the cost of living, but your cash balances are only earning you four percent interest. Yeah. Right. Losing money every year.
0: Yeah. And that drives people into this defensive position. Uh, it, it puts a lot of ignorant money under the management of others. It creates an, an entire class of financial manipulators, uh, which who are dependent upon that con- continuing inflation. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, once resources pass through this sort of bloody curtain of force, I mean, it, they just wreak mayhem. But there's this weird drug of debt that keeps all of this stuff at bay, uh, and which, of course, only makes things uh, only makes things worse in the long run. Sorry, you were going to say something just as Oh, Yeah, ahead. I
1: mean, and that was a thing, right? If you if you look at the uh, if you look at the 19th century, um, when we had a stable we had a stable supply of gold as the money monetary system, you actually had declining prices and uh, increasing purchasing power of the currencies that were based on gold, right? So the U.S. dollar gained purchasing power over 100 years. British pound gained purchasing power over 100 years. And of course now since the creation of the federal reserve and and this was the way of that people saved money that is the way they held their own wealth and things like gold and silver um, and it's funny uh of course that in 1933 is what fdr made illegal right he actually he put forward a, a resolution it was an executive order that seized all of the privately held gold in america right because that's exactly what he wanted to do he wanted to, to strip away the ability of people to save money and that they would then be um, forced to rely on the government, right? So he could inflate as much money and buy as much as he wanted. And what's hilarious, too, is that uh, just last weekend, um, and we've got a piece coming out on it uh, there tomorrow, 60 Minutes had a, had a reporter going over to uh, India. And, you know, they were wondering at the, at the average Indian's sort of, uh, obs- they called it an obsession with gold right there. Indians love to hold gold. India is one of the largest buyers of private, you know, privately held gold. And of course, they they actually know what gold is. It's a it's a store of value. It, it holds its value while your government is um, is sort of rep- you know depressing or uh, destroying the value of its currency because that's what's happening in India right now.
0: The, yeah of course root. I mean if if government currencies are pegged to each other and everyone's inflating it hides the inflation but when you see um the price of gold going up relative to currencies it really is unmasking the inflation it's one of the reasons governments don't like gold and you hear so much drug gold bugs into derogatory mentions of gold uh, like everyone who's got gold is you know hoarding ammo and um, goats in the basement but what it yeah. does is it it, fact, it it statistically unmasks the the lowering value of fiat currency
1: Yeah well it's it's one of the more obvious ones because it's direct I mean don't get me wrong, gold is a highly manipulated market at the same time. But, but what you actually see is the price level of everything going up. You see the price level of food going up. Yeah, I mean, you see it also in commodities, um, you know, copper, platinum. You see it not so much platinum right now, but you see it in, in, in a lot of different commodities. The general price level is rising, which really just means the, the value of your dollar, of the currency of your choice is going down. And what gold is, what silver is, it's a hedge against that currency devaluation. So really, Indians aren't obsessed with gold. It's uh, we in the West who are obsessed with paper, right? (laughs) Well, I would
0: say that we're obsessed with it. I think that um, we are forced to use it. And and alternatives are... Illegal. Alternative currencies are illegal. And we saw what happened to the Liberty, the Liberty dollar in the US. Uh, if you try and compete with the central source of a democratic government's power, which is the fiat currency, I mean, they will lock you up and throw away the key. So oh, I'm obsessed, you know, we're just we're forced to use it. We're backed into a corner. And like most people who are forced, we pretend that we've decided to. And, you know, that's our way of retaining a shred of illusory dignity in the face of being cornered with guns.
1: Yeah, well, it's, I mean, uh, I mean, of course, the internet. The internet is actually, you know, internet, to me, it's amazing. The internet and smartphones are now, well, number one, it's it's enabling people to, you know, if you can imagine the people who are learning about this stuff around the world, it's never talked to them the right, right. Page, which is a thing. Um, you've got a situation now, something, you've got Bitcoin coming up, you've got PayPal. I mean, PayPal could basically be seen as an alternative currency, right? Uh, you've got Peter Schiff created his Euro-Pacific bank. Uh, where you can put money into this bank, purchase gold with a you can you can exchange that money for gold, and then at a later date you push it back into cash. So he's making you know there there are all these different systems that are coming up for people to be able to uh, dodge around and and retain their value. Now of course the problem is it's the agile people, the people who are aware of these things, who are looking for the knowledge. And that sort of uh, that sort of general societal knowledge that would have been known in the 19th century in the early 20th century, people knew well. You know, just hold a little bit of gold retains your value. You'll be able to you know purchase. Um, you know, you'll be able to you know hold something for your for your uh, for your old age. Um, most people just have no idea of that. You know, and so they do get wrapped up in this sort of. The system of, of the government coming to their rescue but of course that's exactly what the government wanted to create it's well to, and
0: in in with the goal of course of the 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 great deal in the new society but the goal of this social engineering was to create less disparity in wealth to to eliminate yeah. the poor and, and hack down the rich little create a, a permanent middle class or a larger middle class uh, and of course like all government programs uh, the exact opposite has occurred that the middle class is getting hollowed out you have a more permanent underclass of poor you have a more extravagant and frankly, revolting class of rich people, not that all rich people are revolting, but those who are, you know, the maggots infesting the scar of our currency, uh, it's exactly what you would predict. I mean, if the government wants to even things out, it's going to make things more extreme in the currency, in in the business cycles, in the wealth disparities, uh, and yet facts still don't matter. People still aren't circling back and saying what went wrong yet.
1: Well, I mean, and the thing is, I don't, I don't necessarily blame, I mean, you know, I don't necessarily blame I mean, if you look at if you look at rich person, I mean, you can talk about quote unquote rich people, but you know, a guy like Peter Thiel, um, a guy like Steve Jobs, a guy like um, I know, I know, everybody's going to hate me for saying this, but. Uh, Bill Gates, you know, the founder of
0: Microsoft. Oh, I mean, I mean I, okay, they've got some IP, they've got some, but, you know, those guys are actually producing stuff. I'm just talking about the the real money men who, who don't make anything, who don't produce anything, who aren't consumer-focused, but are just, you know, like uh, sticking their giant squid-sucking money things into yeah. every orifice exposed by government corruption. Uh, those guys, I think, I are... Mean, you can't blame yeah, them in sure. a way because, you know, if, if a Brinks truck explodes and scatters hundred dollar bills over a poor neighborhood, you can't call everyone a thief who grabs a few and sticks them under his pillow. The state and the violence is the issue. But still, it's kind of gross the way these guys make their living.
1: Oh, well, a guy, I mean, I can't stand, I mean, especially a guy like Warren Buffett, right? I mean, he's, he's sitting there because of the, the, the investing rules and the way that he hides his income. I mean, he only pays himself $100,000 a year, right? Um, somebody at Forbes magazine figured out that Warren Buffett probably pays his secretary between $200,000 and $500,000 a year, right? So he pays his secretary way more than he pays himself. All of his money is investments, and it's basically because it is, because of the way he structures it, he doesn't get taxed on it personally. So he, although he's a billionaire, it appears that he's being taxed at a lower rate than his uh, secretary is being taxed.
0: Meanwhile, yeah, and I said, think what was it? Uh, they just found that uh, Mitt Romney is paying about fifteen percent in taxes on you know multi hundred million dollar a year incomes.
1: Yeah, but again, it's but of course with Romney, it's actually held with a, in a within a blind trust. He actually doesn't make the investment decisions based on this thing. I mean, well, I'm not going to still go an asset
0: in his name, but uh, okay, yeah, what you say.
1: Sure. But at the same, I mean, you know, as at the same time, I, I believe that money put in investments is a legitimate thing, and if you want to hold an investment, that's great. Um, but but. Uh, but, you know, and also the, the people, you've now had um, several generations of people who grown up within this pure fiat, Any basically anybody born after 1971, um, or who was, let's say, 10 years old in 1971, you know, had no understanding of economics. You know, they, they, they grow up, they get a job in finance, you know, nobody's sitting there telling them, you know, buy gold. <laughs> you know, if you were born in, you know, 1980, and you got a job in finance, you know, in, in 2003... You know, you're completely ignorant of all these issues and, and just you're looking for a job. Hey, I can get a job working in the mortgage section. Looks great. I get a great salary. I wouldn't necessarily look at that person and say you're guilty. Um, I mean, no. I would. Oh, I agree.
0: I agree. No, I I, I absolutely agree. Uh, except, of course, these guys do sink their money squid dollar Probius oh, yeah, into, sure. oh. into the into uh, the politicians and make sure things go their way. And in a sense, again, you know, it's it's hard to to really come down. It, it's almost like blaming a uh, doctor in the 14th century for not using penicillin. You know, it's the knowledge yeah. has been lost. You know, we're in that state, like in 1984, when Winston Smith goes into that bar and tries to get the old guy to talk about life before uh, the Socialist Party took over. I mean, that the knowledge is is really being lost. Now, the internet, I think, is this wellspring where it starts to come back up. Uh, so I, I know what you mean. I go, I go by, I don't have a. Particularly strong, um, uh, you know, moral condemnation uh, of people because, except where they avoid knowledge, if if they avoid knowledge, the, the knowledge of libertarianism, Austrian school, the moral arguments, uh, the the revelation that statism is force, that taxation is violence, this is now I think common coin enough that you, you have to yeah. work a little bit to avoid it, and I think that's where the culpability comes in.
1: Oh yeah, no, no, no for sure. I mean, you know, I mean, Ron Paul. I mean, and th- and that's what's changing, right? Uh, um, and I see. I think it's the and you know some of these things take it gen- takes generational changes, right? Um, but now you know I've uh, you know I think there was some guy, uh, this student who was actually part of you know the campus conservative, you know conservative party of Ontario. He went to some um, he went to some conference on the weekend, uh, and he bought fifty books for me to take and just give away. And this is to the you know progressive conservative. Organization of Ontario, which is you know not—I mean—they're basically socialists, right? I mean, they're basically.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. No, that yeah, know, that battle was lost uh, decades ago.
1: But this is the thing. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, they—they they were the ones who put in Oprah. Um, You know, they—they're basically red Tories, or whatever you want to call it. But but this is the thing: is that you know, when with the Ron Paul movement, you know, most of the people—it was funny. uh, uh Peter Schiff or it was Peter Schiff uh, apparently. Oh no! This is Rachel Maddow, who I who I dislike intensely. I was interviewing uh, one of the people, one of the head guys at the Ron Paul campaign. And it's hilarious. Uh, and and I referencing back to the, the talk you gave about uh, baby boomers, you know, the sort of the guilt of the baby boomers and whatnot, who have essentially lived off this highly inflationary system their entire lives. They've been the beneficiaries of it from almost day one. Um, uh, apparently, the, the word had come down in a voice memo. They didn't write this down from the Republican establishment to not vote for anybody under thirty as a uh, as a delegate to go to the Republican convention because
0: they're going to vote for Ron Paul. Right?
1: <laughs> they're going to vote for Ron Paul. So you know when the boomers were under thirty, there was the old hoot and you know, the old uh, the old. Don't goose trust story.
0: anyone over thirty, and now it's flipped.
1: Over oh, now I, I the...
0: think. I mean, I think one of the reasons that the media doesn't like Ron Paul. I, I mean, it's not even that they understand his issues and oppose them. It's just that it takes a little bit of work to understand. Actually, it takes quite a lot of work to understand Ron Paul's arguments. And I just don't think they want to lift their lazy, entitled asses off the couch, go to a book and actually read up on the gold standard and learn a little bit about economics uh, outside of the mainstream. They just want to push their, you know, idiot, quacking duck talking points around and talk about who has a mistress and who had open marriage conversations perhaps 10 or 20 years ago. They don't actually want to crack a book and learn something because, you know, that that hurts. Well, but you know, I
1: mean, most people, you know, most people on television, especially, are picked for their looks, right? They're not picked because they were, you know, they great, they wrote a great master's thesis on, you know, the nature of trade or anything like that. Even you know, even the people in economics, essentially, they're just reading, you know, the business section. They're reading teleprompters, right? It's uh, as a I think the term that was coined was infotainment, right? So right, if, right. It, if it could be entertaining for the for the broad general public and get that lowest common denominator you know we've got a million viewers let's sell some ads it's not about education it's about ed- entertainment and i think that's i mean that's one good thing about a, a great thing about a guy like peter Schiff is that he is entertaining so he you know during the th- whole housing boom he was getting in on these things and he would he would lambaste these people and say look this is a bubble going to be bursting he was funny and entertaining and so you know that's sort of why he got the you know the, got it so Know, so what she's you expect- saying
0: is, ne- next time we talk, we're going to have clown noses. That's, I think, oh, where we sure, should next- be going. I think that's where we're getting. Yeah. I got a rainbow wig which I can pop on, all that kind of good stuff.
1: In fact, I'm, I'm going to replace myself with a, just a picture of Brad Pitt, um, <laughs> and, and then I'll just talk, and you know, we'll, we'll sort of animate his lips moving, and then right. you know, I'll, I'll get, a, I'll get a, a great job out of that. Actually, like uh, that show
0: Space Rangers—it was a cartoon show with real live lips that drifted all over people's faces all the time. They- <laughs>
1: Well, on that on that note, actually, we're uh, I've been talking to a bunch of people within sort of the the broader libertarian, uh, anarcho capitalist community about putting together some type of um, some type of either online network or something
0: like oh, that. Oh yeah, we need that for sure. I mean, um, now the judge the the laser of uh, corporate indifference has uh, hit Judge Napolitano on the forehead, uh, and what a small forehead it is! So that's quite an aiming job. That's just, but uh, um, yeah, we definitely need that because uh, I don't think we can turn things around before they change, but at least we can hammer the points and be accepted as right after uh, some some transition occurs. And I think that would be a a good uh, a good trail to leave for people to follow.
1: Well, that's what I mean, that's the thing is that Peter Schiff, uh, in fact, even Peter Schiff says that he doesn't get on TV as much as he used to. Right. Because that was the whole thing. He was right. He was for eight years. You know, he was eight years. He was banging a drum. Saying this is coming, this is why it's coming. Keynesian doesn't work. Um, this is a bubble. And now, of course, they all know he was right. And now they don't want to have him on TV anymore
0: because no, and it's because he's got credibility and he's talking about the next thing, uh, which yeah. is you know currency crisis. Uh, and they really don't want somebody with that level of competence and and credibility talking about something that's far more dangerous to people than a mere and I say that very lightly, but uh, or very advisedly, a mere housing crash, a currency a crash is uh, infinitely more dangerous than a housing crash and so i think they don't want uh, that kind of information going out there because you know it's like as they all edge towards the lifeboats they don't want all the other people on the on the titanic uh, looking looking that way either
1: yeah well uh, there's there's a few indicators of that the uh There's something called the Baltic Dry Index, which I guess is uh, this broad index that tracks just uh, bulk shipping around the world. And apparently that's fallen now uh, precipitously. And that hasn't fallen in something like 40 years or something like that, right? Um, And then as well, apparently the World Bank um, put out some reports saying that uh, people should be, you know, basically saying there's a major recession coming, a major pullback. Um, some Council of Economic Stats has sort of come out with a, with a bearish sort of outlook. And it's rare that, that these organizations will do that. Now, you know, uh, you can understand why, why you know, governments and the news media. I mean, this is thing, Ron Paul, he's an outsider, you can come out and say these things and say, look, we're heading for a crash. But if the government suddenly just says, OK, guys, yeah, bang, we're heading for a crash. We can't handle it. Prepare yourselves for the worst you know, all their credibility would be gone. You would have people, I think you would have states' rights movements, you would have people just saying, why am I paying my taxes anymore? You know, they would lose, you know, the grant. Well, you know, and like at a more government.
0: basic level, I think you would see people hoarding food and, and you know, I mean, all the stuff that happened with duct tape after 9-11, that you would see uh, significant interruptions, uh, significant interruptions in the food chain. And that, as we saw in the Middle East, that leads directly to revolt. And, yep. uh, they, you know, they're just, you know, I think to be in the government now is just about one more day, one more day. Come on, one more day. That's, you know, just whipping that horse to go three more feet, despite the fact that it's on one leg and pulling itself forward by its teeth. Uh, but I think it's just one more day for these guys. And, uh, they you know, they all have investments. They're all trying to get their money uh, into something more secure and they don't want to crash. Uh, you know, it's just one more day. I think that's like every addict. It's just I don't think about the long term. I don't you know, I'm, I lie about everything. It's just one more day. I got to get my fix.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you can you can see also the rise of the, of the police state within the United States, particularly yeah. um, over the last eight years. Um, and you can almost say, I mean, if these guys, if if, if some of these guys, and, and actually there was, because um, I'm working uh, now with a guy named Jeff Berwick who does uh, the Dollar Vigilante. Sort of, it's an investment newsletter. Um, and uh, I saw uh, he he pointed me to this video of this conference a little while ago, and. Uh, Apparently, this guy had been speaking. Now, it, you know, it was unattributed, right? But apparently, this guy had been speaking to somebody in the Obama White House. He said, now, look, what are you going to do to, uh, you know, how are you going to address uh, U.S. manufacturing when, you know, our relative, uh, you know, our, our wages are so high relative to the rest of the world? And, and to some extent, that's what Europe and, and the United States and, or the, the entire G8 has done. We've priced ourselves out of the global manufacturing market. With all these, you know, wage and price controls, high, highly unionized, uh, highly, and of course, not not just unionized, but government enforced unionization. Yeah. Um, and apparently, the guy in the Obama Obama White House said, "We're going to destroy the dollar, right?" And this is the thing: if you, you know, if the United States destroys the dollar, they become the new China, right? They become this this country with this massive population. All of a sudden, they're competitive again in terms of manufacturing and all these sorts of things. And it's just something that people, I mean, we, you know, whatever is coming down the line, we're going to get through it.
0: Of course. And we'll get through it, I think, more easily than any other time in history, because we do have such accumulated wealth. It's not like all the buildings and and houses, they don't all vanish the moment the currency has a problem. And it's not, um, you know, again, I don't think it's going to be a disaster. uh, But I think that we really need to work hard for people to understand that it's force that hasn't worked, not voluntarism. It's government that hasn't worked, as it never does, not the free market. I think that's the real challenge.
1: Well, that's the old thing, right? I mean, it's like the old Soviet Union. Right. I mean, everybody, you know, there were there were plenty of people in the West who up until 1989 would look at the Soviet Union and say, you know, this the Soviet Union is is proof positive that central planning can can really provide, you know, and, and help to plan an economy. Right. Two years later, the entire Soviet Union uh, crashes, of course. You know, the problem, the Soviet Union was in a far worse position than we we we, we are um, because they had spent 70 years destroying their capital, right? Um,
0: and their population, guess, not to mention. That,
1: their population, right? yeah, murdering their population.
0: 70 million people, I think, died uh, in the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc countries were murdered by the state. Which again, sorry, just to mention Stephen Pinker's new book, uh, The End of Violence or the Minimization of Violence or Violence is Better Now than it ever was in the past. He just he yep. excludes 250 million ki- people killed by their own governments. He excludes non-combatants, which was of course the central focus of war after the First World War. Uh, so yeah, if you exclude a whole bunch of people getting killed, I guess violence looks better. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that.
1: Yeah, well, there's hey, a on. there's a good website called uh, it's called Democide. If I don't know if you've been to.
0: Oh it. yeah, it's no, guy. I've been to that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, the University of Hawaii he talks about that. Um, and meanwhile, I mean, and really, you could say that. You know, in a real sense, America has really been destroying its, its real capital since about, you know, in a real way since 1971, when it went off the gold standard, because um, that helped to create something known as the Rust Belt, right? Because uh, if somebody, in, let's say somebody invests in in, in in some machines and it costs them, it costs them $500,000 for that machine and they base the pricing of their products on that machine, right? So they'll say, okay, I need to replace this in five years or 10 years. I need to charge X amount for my products. Now, five years or 10 years goes on. Sure, they've made some more, they've made some paper profits, right? But when it, goes, when it comes time to replace that machine, that machine might cost a million dollars, right? And so they end up just u- abusing, you know, using their capital, right? And then also because of the influence of environmentalism, uh, if you look at the oil industry, oil and gas industry in the United States, and energy altogether, um, they haven't built a new coal-fired power plant in 40 years. They've been blocking, they haven't built a nuclear power plant in 40 years.
0: Actually, I think yeah. one just got approved, or two just got yeah. approved yeah. recently, yeah. yeah they haven't, and of course, the other thing that's, I mean, yeah used to say the government protected unions and so on, there have been, I've read the statistic and I still, I haven't verified it except in two, two sites, but According to some statistics, uh, upwards of 200 plants a day have been closing in the U.S. over the past year or two, uh, manufacturing plants. I mean, that stuff's just been completely decimated. And, of course, yeah, that was yeah. the road to the middle class for the less educated population. And, um, you know, it's particularly hit minorities very hard. And, again, you don't see a lot of people who um, uh, are against racism dealing with that kind of stuff uh, because well, you know, no, that's the, just too he, obvious.
1: No, I mean, as Walter Williams or Thomas Sowell, pointed out, the minimum wage and unionization was was uh, very brutal racist.
0: on the blacks yeah it was just number brutal one. on the blacks yeah uh,
1: in 19 in 1941 um uh, in the 1940s 1930s and 40s um minority unemployment was lower than white unemployment in the united states um since uh, since the great society since the welfare state um that disparity has just been growing especially in the young uh, i mean number one i mean young white unemployment is, is actually quite high now too but but young black unemployment is even higher.
0: Yeah, I think the so young that. white can be calculated at 20 to 25%, but the black and Hispanic can be 35 to 40% among the young. It's unbelievable. And of course, yeah. you know, the people who came to clear about, who, <laughs> who claim to care about these minorities are not dealing with that kind of stuff because they're too busy just looking at uh, pushing images around rather than dealing with the facts. Anyway, listen, we've had a long chat. I don't want to exhaust the uh, audience's attention span too, too much, but I really do appreciate it. Let's just make sure that people get to uh, talk a little bit about uh, the Mises Canada website, what's going on, What's coming up? The address.
1: Oh, and just and just to follow up, all these problems that we're seeing today is all Keynesianism. It's the effects of Keynesianism, except it's the effects of the idea that the government can and should just spend as much money as it possibly can to do whatever it wants to, you know, help the economy. But anyways, um, you can find us out at uh, Mises Canada. So that's www.mises.ca, um, and then. Um, and we're also, in the next month or two, we're going to be coming out with a whole new look for the website. Um, we're looking at putting together a Mises Canada University uh, for August 2012. So students, please start sending me emails at contact at uh, Mises.ca. We're going to have Bob Murphy up. We're going to have um, Pete uh, Peter Klein up um, and probably Danny Leroy. Uh, we're going to be doing a three days intensive on the Austrian School of Economics and how to apply it. Um, Yeah, so uh, check it out, muses.ca
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks, Redmond, so much. I appreciate your efforts uh, in uh, attempting to bring a little bit of uh, the Austrian Alps to the Canadian Rockies. Uh, It's not exactly the easiest fit at times, but it's absolutely essential. Have a great week, and we'll do this again soon.
1: Talk to you soon, Stefan.
0: Bye.